0: This is Strange Assembly, episode 258, Three Co-Ops and a Betrayal. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Mike Cook. Hey. And you are listening to Strange Assembly. We're going to be talking today about four board games that have been released over the last year. As the title says, three of them are co-ops. And one of them is Betrayal Legacy. The three co-ops are Aeon's End Legacy, Thanos Rising, and Ruby Combat Ready. But Mike, why don't you kick it off with Betrayal Legacy, a pretty big release from Avalon Hill near the end of uh, 2018, Halloween-ish if I recall
1: correctly. Yep. Betrayal, which is short for Betrayal at House on the Hill, is a board game from Avalon Hill. The original edition came out in the early mid-2000s, I want to say like 2003-2004, and it was actually a big part of what got me back into board game, or or got me into like a different style of board gaming that wasn't just like Monopoly or or the normal Parker Brothers stuff. Like I had found Magic way before then, but for some reason I had mainly just been card games and not any of the the Euro stuff, like Catan and that type of thing I, I didn't really catch. but Trail is a game where it's essentially just a mashup of all the horror movies you have ever seen, but the neat thing is, you actually all kind of start out working together, you're trapped in this haunted house, and you have to explore the haunted house. And then in the course of exploring the haunted house, things happen, you just kind of have to deal with them or whatever. Uh, You know, just the type of stuff you'd see in a haunted house movie. And then eventually, uh, tile gets flipped, uh, because you're actually building out the house, so it's unique every time you do it. You have a big stack of tiles that are all the different rooms. Eventually, you flip a tile that has an event and you make a roll to see if you've revealed the haunt, which is basically your characters figure out, oh, God, this is what's actually going on. Assuming that you they basically didn't know and they're just trapped in the house, they're like, well, we got to explore this, right? Basically, the same setup for a million horror movies. And then depending on what the omen, sorry, it was the omen that you pull. Depending on the omen that you pull with the room that you found it in, You'd look at a chart and it would tell you, okay, you're doing haunt number 30. And you got two books that had 50 different haunts that were each different from each other. And then it would tell you what haunt you are doing. And it would tell you who the betrayer was. Because it turns out one of you is actually the betrayer. Sometimes it was literal. Like one of you would be a werewolf or one of you would be a witch. Or one of you is a witch. Sometimes it was more like your character died and then you took control of vines that are going through the house and trying to eat everybody or whatever and at that point you actually separate out and there's a book for the person who's the betrayer and there's a book for everybody else and at that point it becomes a one versus many game where the one person is trying to kill has some kind of thing that they're trying to do which is usually kill everybody and then the uh, survivors as they're called that's the betrayer is the one person and then the survivors have to try to foil you typically and sometimes that's killing the uh, the betrayer. Sometimes that's just stopping whatever machinations they have. And that's the core of the game. And it plays really quickly, but there's enough depth that you can, you know, it's kind of fun to roleplay a bit. I love horror, so all of these things play into things that I, I really like. So, as you can probably see, there's a lot of good bones there for a legacy game. Right? Because the idea for legacy is that you unlock components, you change components, things happen. And certainly that's exactly what happens in Betrayal Legacy. It's a lot of what you would come to expect from a Legacy game. And they have a couple of twists or, or whatever that are kind of interesting. I can't really talk about it because I don't want to spoil any of it, which is kind of always the problem with when you're talking about a Legacy game. So it's interesting. I would say, in my experience with Legacy games... One of the problems is just doing, because it's meant to be played usually with the same group of players a number of times, right? A lot of times that'll be, maybe it's 10 times you want to get together, maybe it's 12 times you want to get together, sometimes it's 7 times you want to get together. For this, uh, it's like 13 that you want to, of course it's horror movies, so of course it's going to be 13. And just being an adult, the hardest thing to do is just get the same number of people four or five people is usually what these games are together in a room because most of these games take like an hour and then you have to play like 13 of them back to back and nobody get tired and everybody show up so it can be a chore to actually get them completed and i've actually got we actually got halfway through which is i'm pretty happy with that progress and we're we're gonna finish it and i think that's one of the better things that i like which also leads into aon zen legacy later but one of the things i like about it is because betrayal by its nature is a faster game it once people know what they're doing it tends to be about a 20 to 30 minute game so it's something you can actually get a couple repetitions repetitions in in a night and because of the whole haunt revealing thing that really lends itself to multiple replays in the same night because you're not even like mixing up the scenario you're just getting something entirely different entirely different person's the betrayer you. you can't control it i mean you can you can say oh you know what i want to be the betrayer this time and if you really guys you know if you guys really want to do that but by the rules you know it it changes up every time a lot of it kind of lends itself naturally to legacy right like it's just oh these haunts that are possible are not haunts that you've seen before the weird thing about it i guess is this is maybe one of the legacy games that i've played where you really would want to play through it maybe multiple times just because there's so many different paths and you just kind of don't see the other path at all right because there's nothing telling you there's it's not exactly a logical conclusion to what betrayal you're going, what haunt you're going to play. And it's never been. That's fine. That's not like something that's broken in the game or whatever. That's just kind of how the game is. And everybody, you know, but in the actual base game, you can just look at it and say, okay, well, we've already done this one three times. Let's do this one right below it. You know, we'll just see which rooms it was supposed to have. And, you know, you can kind of finagle it and just play that. And even tells you that in the rule book. You know, if you don't want to do the one that it says is the reveal, you can change it if you want. In a weird way, it's also like that—that that makes it feel less like a legacy game, if that makes any sense. There are cards that come up that you can put your sticker on, and it's your same family that's going through the generations. But you change—you choose a different pawn, like the the character that's representing you. Choose a different one for each generation, or you can stick with the same or whatever. So it's kind of an interesting idea, but I don't know—I don't know that the exact execution. Just blows me away. It's not bad. It's just not like super great. Oh, this is the best legacy game I've ever played. And in a weird way, the fact that it actually already was more of almost a legacy type of game, because it does have that kind of unpredictability to it and how it fundamentally shifts the game, weirdly, I guess, kind of takes away from the legacy aspect of it. Because, you know, it's not like Risk, where all of the continents are always the same and so when one of the pieces of the continent blows up or something something crazy happens that permanently changes it it really has an effect on all the you know games that come after that like sure something can happen to a room or a room gets destroyed but the game's already so random you don't even necessarily see that game for the rest of the game that room for the rest of the game so
0: well, you do have legacy, right? Legacy elements in this. I think you mentioned, right? You are playing a family. Now, you're not like necessarily the same person every time, right. but you have members of the same family. But you can get stuff during the course of a playthrough that then you know one of that character, or one of your other characters can use in a later game, like extra abilities, right?
1: You get like a small
0: bonus, but it's
1: not. It's not huge, and you you can trade stuff in the game, so really, it's like, oh, are we survivors? Well, I guess I'll trade this to you, but also I'm a little bit mad that you got to actually put a sticker on it, and I didn't, or whatever, so maybe I can just be a jerk and not give it to you, because it's not gonna gonna cause us to to lose the game, or whatever.
0: Okay, that is Betrayal Legacy from Avalon Hill, and the first thing that I uh, wanted to talk about is, now that we're in the the, the actual co-ops, not just the, it acts like it's a co-op at the beginning, but that it's totally not. That's uh, Thanos Rising. So I know we're we're now sitting here, and in a few months, if I recall correctly, Avengers Endgame is going to come out. But uh, Thanos Rising is co-branded with Avengers Infinity War. Of course, the big movie from last year, and in Thanos Rising, you are... Indeed, the Avengers and other heroes of the Marvel Cinematic Universe attempting to defeat enough of Thanos' underlings before he defeats too many heroes or before he collects all of the Infinity Gems. You start with a home base, and you start with a starting hero, and there's the heroes come in four different varieties. There's cosmic heroes, tech heroes, mystic heroes, and... um. I call them blast heroes. Maybe it's just combat. It's it's whatever, you know, Hulk and Captain America and Hawkeye are. Like they're everybody who doesn't fit into one of the other categories basically. Right? You know, well like the mystic heroes are all the Asgardians and then Doctor Strange and the cosmic heroes are mostly Guardians of the Galaxy and then the tech heroes is Black Panther and some of the people from Wakanda and Iron Man. And so on every turn what you're trying to do is roll a a collection of dice which starts out small and the dice generate different symbols and you use those symbols to either recruit heroes or put damage on villains that are in a particular sector of space that you have assigned to and as you recruit more heroes that will give you more abilities which may give you more dice you get little bonus tokens every time you put damage on a villain but on every turn after you decide which sector to go to but before you get to roll your dice. Thanos gets to do his thing. And so you have one infinity die and one Thanos die, and you roll those, and the infinity die will add some activity to Thanos' collection of the infinity gems. And then once he's got enough little tokens on one of the gems, he collects the gem, and from that point on in the game, if you roll that gem, Thanos will use it on you. But regardless, Thanos will also get the Thanos die, which... Likely affect which sector he is going to, but might make you re roll the infinity die or might make you activate all of the villains on the board. Because the final thing that Thanos does is he attacks in your sector, he attacks in the sector he is in, rather, and he then activates all the villains in the sector that he is in. And so when he attacks a sector, he damages all the heroes there. That includes the heroes that are sitting up in the sector available to be recruited. But if you're in that sector, it also includes every single person on your entire team. And then when the villains activate, they will do things like roll the infinity die again, or do more damage to heroes, or have Thanos activate an entire additional sector. You know, the usual sort of co-op game things where every single turn you get pummeled and then try to, you know, actually accomplish enough to make the pummeling worth it? So this one went over really well, playing it with adults and then also with the the oldest of my kids, who's eight. This is the sort of game we don't try to play with anyone younger than that. I think that the the younger kid really enjoyed rolling the dice. It was definitely tense. I mean, we were playing, I mean, we only played on the easiest level, which requires you to defeat, I think, se- if you defeat seven of the ten villains before Thanos defeats you, then you get a win on that. You could increase the difficulty by putting more shards on the Infinity Stones at the start of the game or requiring you to defeat every single one of the villains before you can win. I think that usually when we'd get around, we we do win, so like I'd, I'd heard that it was a very difficult game, so I was not really expecting us to be able to really come much close to winning at all, but we did manage to win both the times that we played, but it was always really close and you'd have these heroes at the end who just had damage marker after damage marker after damage marker on them and we had been like scrambling and using healing abilities to try to keep everybody alive and because if you get to that point where like your team of six people gets wiped out, that's probably going to be enough heroes in the discard pile that Thanos will win. He doesn't in fact have to kill half of you to win, just 10, but still. And it it has this big, huge Thanos piece in the middle too that you like physically rotate around the sectors. So that was pretty fun. It definitely, I think, obviously, it's not literally following the exact plot of Infinity War, but it it definitely captured the vibe of Infinity War. And if you if you like co-op games or you like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it it is a fun game and it is a real gamer game. It's not just you know, some licensed trash. But that is Thanos Rising from USAopoly.
1: You've been out some pretty good stuff.
0: Yes. I think if you rewind far enough back and said USAopoly to me, I would be like, so that's like odd branded versions of Monopoly? I think I guess- that's where the Oppoly and USAopoly came from. It is. And they still are do almost exclusive... Not entirely, but almost in- entirely branded stuff, but like actual games. Right. I mean, I think Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle has been their most successful one so far, but they've got quite a few things. I mean, uh, and, and at different like player levels, too. I mean, Thanos, it, it, Thanos Rising is a gamer game. Not like a, a super heavy one or anything, but it's a gamer right. game. I mean, they've got other ones that are, are more party game-ish, like the Oh, uh, I mean, oh, oh, crud! I'm blanking now. There was the Mar- power-up, like the Mario power-up game, or oh, I think right, there's, right, right. I think, and I think there's a Guardians of the Galaxy version of that as too. I mean, right? Those yeah. are super light card games that you know would be fi- fillers at most on the the complexity level, but uh, they've they've definitely been been hitting well lately. Yep. And then you have, you mentioned it earlier. You have another legacy game for us.
1: Yes. So, Aeon Legacy, or Eonsen, I should say. So, Eon's End is a game that's been on my radar for a little bit. It's had a number of expansions. So, Eon's End is a completely cooperative deck builder. But the big twist to it is, unlike a lot of other deck builders, you actually know exactly how your starting hand and deck are set up. And then also, you never shuffle your discard pile. So, there are some specific orders to how things go in your discard pile like if you buy during your turn right you've got the normal stacks of cards but they actually are more rigid it's not a a big shuffled randomized stack like a lot of them have uh, started to be now it is hey you've got your choices on like gems which will get you more money for the turn or you have spells or you have items that's really all there is in the game is you've got your character who does something special You've got gems, which are money, spells, which do damage, and occasionally other things. So whenever you buy something, it goes directly in the discard pile, and then whatever you played for the turn goes on top. So you you have to order it that way, but then whatever you're discarding, you actually get to order it however you want, once it actually goes into the discard pile. So you can kind of stack your deck, and it probably sounds a little bit weird, and and it kind of is initially you can look through your discard pile at any time but you can't look at it once you actually flip it to make a deck so it's like a deck builder in that whenever you need to draw a card and you don't have anything in your deck you take the discard pile but you just flip it rather than shuffling it so you can you know there is a good bit of predictive okay i know what's coming next i know what's happening here and you would think that that would get oh well every game is going to play out the same way but it kind of doesn't because you can do different things. You, you cannot spend a card to keep it in your hand because your hand doesn't go away at the end of the turn, unlike most deck builders. Whatever you don't play actually stays, so you can kind of mess with the order of your deck a little bit and how it's going to come back. And you can watch your discard and try and make sure that it comes back in the way that you need. And so every game you're playing against a boss, each of the sets comes with different bosses, they all have their own unique gimmick, and then there's they have a deck of stuff that you have to beat, and you either have to take down the, whatever health pool they have, or you have to take out all of the cards that were, that were in the deck, and each of them have some kind of complication. Some of them just have a separate deck where they attack you. Some of them, they do very different things, which is kind of nice. It really does add some variety. And so then you as the players are just working together to beat the boss, and that's basically it. So the way the main way that you actually interact with that so you have the gems which let you buy more stuff but also let you interact with your portals so you start with typically one portal open so you are called portal mages and basically what it is is your spell cards that you have you can't just play them out of hand you actually have to play them onto an open portal and you only start the game with one open portal but you can spend uh your crystals one of the things you can do is that you can actually you can open the portal but a lot of times that's really expensive. So instead of that, you can just kind of put some money into it. It's kind of like a layaway plan and it rotates it until it comes down and then it reduces the cost of the portal to open it. But anytime you rotate it like that, you actually have kind of primed it and then you can also put a spell on there. And then at the start of your turn is actually when the spell's cast. So there is a bit of a predictiveness, right? And this is also how you can affect your deck because you can leave cards on the portals. If the portal's open, you don't have to cast the spell. If you do cast the spell, it goes in your discard pile, and then your regular like the rest of your turn starts where everything else happens. There's you know that's how you strategize, and, and then the spells are what actually do the damage, and so then that's how you kill the minions that the boss has, and that's how you hit the boss and you each have health, but then there's also a town that you're protecting, because the whole, like, Lord of the game or whatever is, this is actually the end of the world, like, end of the universe, and you're in one of the last towns that exists, so you have to try and make sure that that town survives. Um, and it starts with, like, 30 health, and so if it dies, it's actually worse, because you instantly lose. That's almost worse than one of you going down, because you going, one of you going to zero health actually doesn't end the game. Only when all of you go to zero health does it end the game. Um, anyways, so... Uh, kind of a long introduction but uh, I got a beast copy of the second edition of the game and I liked it enough that the Legacy was coming out. They had a very successful Kickstarter uh, last year for it or maybe the year before Um, and it came out to retail in February so my uh, game and this was right before it came out so I was likely enough to get a copy of it and so basically it's you know you play you get more story for the Rift Mages and you know the Rift Mage that you get the are mostly the same but they have an ability that's going to be different they also um the portals as you have them are actually in different orientations so some portals are more advanced than others in this you actually essentially get to build your mage as you're going along because you're like a brand new rift mage and so now as the story decisions come out you know they you you'll get to put stuff on your cards you'll get to actually change the cards in your deck and the nice thing about it it, like the story itself it's fine you know it's I don't really expect any of these legacy games to actually have any kind of story with Heft. It's just, it's a deck-building co-op game, that's fine, it has enough. It's got some nice atmosphere, that's about all I ask. But the the actual choices that you make, you actually change what's in the supply, the bosses that you fight change every time, and you actually have to either fight it, and then if you fail it, you you know, you actually fight it, you can fight it again. And it's, I think the number of plays is minimum like 8, but it can go up to 12 or 13. And the thing is, like the game plays in about twenty-ish minutes, especially as you, uh, with people who know what they're doing, you know, who've played the game a number of times, so uh, and just probably have played deck builders before. So I was able over two weekends to get this. We are on the last mission. We so we've basically finished the legacy. We just need to do the last one, and then that's it. And I have to say, this is. Not only my favorite Legacy game, because we actually are very close to finishing it, but also it's something that I have never really felt a compunction to fin- do another round of a Legacy game, even halfway through a Legacy game. Like, I've never been like, well, you know what, I'd really like to set this up, or I'd like to get the refresh pack or whatever. But this, I, I totally could see myself getting the refresh pack, because it's actually re- it's really fun to build your mage, to give them new abilities, to figure out how you're all going to work together. You know, okay, you get this ability that, like, helps heal the town, and I'll get this ability that lets me do a whole bunch of damage to minions, etc. So it ends up being really good. The The card format is really good because you're changing what's in the supply is it's very important, and it actually adds, like, this whole separate meta level of cooperation. It's kind of similar to setting up a regular game, right? But it just adds a little bit more because it is kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a more of a permanent thing, and each game has more of a stake rather than, oh, we just win or we lose, because you actually have the the whole metagame thing that's going through the whole thing. So, I have quite enjoyed it. I think it's a lot of fun. Like I said, it might be the first Legacy game I actually play through another time, but we do still need to finish the last one. (laughs) But that's Aeon's End Legacy.
0: Yes, and Aeon's End Legacy is from indie boards and cards, and if you're interested, as of the time that we're recording this, there is actually a Kickstarter going on right now for Aeon's End the New Age. So this is not Aeon's this is not part of Aeon's End Legacy. It's a standalone expansion for the normal Aeon's End game, and it is on Kickstarter until Friday, March fifteenth, twenty nineteen. And by the way, If you're listening to this and it's after 2019 and it matters that I said 2019, that really warms my heart. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, my second fully co op game is Ruby Combat Ready. Now, I've talked about that on the podcast before because I first played it back at Gen Con, but it's had its full retail release now. And I got one in the retail release. And the reason I got it was because my kids love Ruby. And even like the younger one loves Ruby, the older one they their five and eight. They both love Ruby. I knew that there was no way the five-year-old was going to be able to play this. It'd be the sort of thing where she would like want to play and say she wanted to play and then would be at the table for like 15 minutes before she was going to abandon. But brief rundown, in ruby you are playing one of you as an individual player are one of the members of team ruby or penny there's it's so it can support up to five right it's got the four members of team ruby and and then they needed one more and you are going through one game it's going to involve one villain you really play a a connected series of three of them and on any given part of the game there is one of the members of Team Ruby that is the the primary protagonist and is directly facing the villain. The other three members are going to be running around and doing other things or helping out. And it's very much a like there's a speed-based element to it, so the core thing is that the, the primary player is going to play whatever their combat move is, having some sense of what the possible moves that the bad guy might play are. Whether or not it's a subtle move, which tend to be slow and powerful, or it's an aggressive move that tend to be really fast. So they'll have some information, they'll play their combat card, the combat cards will get flipped up, and then whoever is faster will actually hit the other side. If there's a tie, nobody hits. So... In an ideal world, you're picking the most powerful card that you can that's just barely fast enough to hit. But, you know, in a non-ideal world, you keep trying to do that and then miss all the time and get pummeled. If you hit the bad guy, then you move up your fury track. The bad guy automatically moves up their fury track one spot every turn, no matter what. And eventually, you get into what is the bash zone for them and what is your ultimate zone. And once the villain is in the bash zone, the next time they hit you, the duel is over. And once you get into your ultimate zone, you have the option of playing your ultimate card, and if you do that, then you will bash the villain out of the duel, and then you'll go on to the next teammate's turn to, like, take the starring role in directly fighting against Cinder or Torchwood or whoever it is that you're, you're competing against. In the meantime, while you are not the star traction, you can be either assisting the primary player, which you play one of your cards to just add a little kicker to theirs. Uh, You can try to do a combo with the starting player, which is putting your combat card up there on the main line just with theirs. Now you have an attack that goes as slowly as the slowest of the two cards. But if you hit, it'll do both cards' worth of damage. If you lose, you'll both take the damage of the card that the the villain has played. So it's, you know, higher risk, higher reward play. But in addition to these villains, there are going to be usually some sort of henchmen running around. You know, random Grims or, or whatever. And if those Grims aren't cleared out by the time that the duel ends they will deal damage to whichever member of the team just finished their duel. So it's important to try to clear those out so you can go over and you can fight them. And there's no no turn order within this between those players, right? It's just the main player puts down their move, everybody else does whatever they're going to do, and then you flip up the villains and, and see what the comparison works out. So I've enjoyed this one. I mean, I wouldn't have bought it if I hadn't enjoyed it, playing it back at Gen Con. You can level up a little bit between the duels. There's actually you gain experience for doing hits, and then you can swap out for slightly better cards. I guess, you know, one could say it's something of a deck building mechanic. Unfortunately, however, I did not get anywhere with the kids on this one. It didn't have big chunky dice like Thanos Rising did. And I think that the I think that the gains were a little too incremental and i think that it, it was just not taken very well when you'd like try to like you'd play a card but you could have a fight where like you kind of miss repeatedly like you know you 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 just barely miss being fast enough and then you just barely miss being fast enough and they just barely miss being fast enough and the whole time within a given duel the the enemy is getting like a little bit better and a little bit better so if you don't hit early on, it gets harder to hit later, and then, because you're not hitting early on, you're not advancing your XP track, and so you're not getting any of those bonuses that you would otherwise get. so it, it can snowball in the wrong way if you're not careful. I think that the eight-year-old found that frustrating. I mean, the game is rated 14 plus. I don't really care that the game is rated 14 plus as such, like we routinely play games with our kids that are rated for you know that have a higher age listing the bgg community says 10 plus and maybe that's maybe that's more accurate because like I said the eight-year-old despite really liking Ruby did not get this one so I guess wait until your kids are a little bit older but I enjoyed playing Ruby combat ready you definitely definitely need to think ahead on this this one because it is one where you A lot of co-op games, right, you you get smashed on a bunch early on, but then you get the stuff you need to recover. And this is definitely not one of those. Like, you you really got to make sure each time you get into a duel that you try to get up a little bit in that duel, because once you start missing early on, you're just kind of in damage control mode for the rest of the duel until the next girl can get up there for the fight. That's Ruby Combat Ready from Arcane Wonders. Do you think you're
1: gonna try and break it back out, or do you think they just won't be interested in Ruby
0: when they're older? I think it's gonna to have to wait a couple. I I, I don't know. It's gonna to have to wait a little bit to come back out.
1: Fair. So yeah, I figured it'd be like a few years or something.
0: The youngest has got a ways to go. That is is for sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think the the in our household at this point, the sort of platonic ideal of a game would be one that somehow I find stimulating and yet is short and interesting enough to keep the five year old focused the whole time. That's not a super lot of overlap, you know <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say they seem pretty diametrically opposed. We have a a relatively wide selection with the eight year old i I mean d- don't get me wrong, there's still large chunks that are cut off there, right, but you, you know you have a lot more that you can do. But yeah, that, at at five, she doesn't even really have the, the focus or attention span to sit and play the game for that long most of the time, even mm-hmm. when she's just on someone's team. But you know, such is life. Right, such are kids. <laughs> yes. So we've we've talked today about Betrayal Legacy, Aeon Zen Legacy, Thanos Rising, and Ruby Combat Ready. So you can go. Check those out online or at your friendly local game store. But you have been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our podcast or you can do that at iTunes or anywhere fine podcasts are sold. We always do appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on any of those services but especially iTunes, because that helps other people find the show. You can also subscribe to the video versions of our podcast on YouTube, where we have a channel creatively titled Strange Assembly. You can also find us as Strange Assembly on all the usual social media haunts, so that's facebook.com strangeassembly, at strangeassembly on Twitter, and Strange Assembly on Instagram. You can also reach me directly. I'd be happy to hear from you. I'm Chris at strangeassembly.com. Always great to hear your comments, criticisms, feedback. But until then, for Mike Cook, I'm Chris Stevenson, and this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.